0: So this morning, we are looking at Matthew chapter 14, uh, verses 13 through 21. Uh, Matthew 14, 13 through 21. We've looked a long time ago at Matthew's version, of, or at Mark's version of this story. Matthew's is uh, is similar. So this is the first time I've done this version. I like it. So Matthew 14, 13 through 21, you'll find it on the screen or on the screen. Um, Otherwise, if you've got it, you can follow along that way as well. Before we do, let's pray. God, we, we just say thank you for once again uh, meeting us here in this place. We thank you for giving us your presence. We thank you for this word. And we ask, God, that, that you would speak to us and that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear that we would come humbly so that you once again would be able to shape us and mold us so that we look more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen. So Matthew 14, starting at verse 21, hear these words. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. When he heard what happened, I'll tell you about that later. There's sort of a flow to Matthew's telling of the Jesus story that I'll bring us into once we read the story. So when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed, He saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. the number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. We will go that far so like I said, there's sort of a flow to what Matthew's doing here, and I, I want us to I want us to be able to enter into that flow, so we're going to talk just for a few minutes about. Uh, some of the things that happened right before this event uh, took place, and there's some sort of themes that, are, that sort of stay really consistent and pop up here again in this story, and I think it's important for us to do that. So for Jesus, it had been kind of a rough day, sprinkled with some successes, you know, for this new young prophet from Nazareth named Jesus. So he had been teaching some pretty hard things to understand for people to understand. Now the people in his inner circle were trying their best to understand what Jesus was teaching, but it seemed at this point that the larger crowds that began following Jesus uh, really didn't understand what, what he was getting at. Because in reality, he was talking to them about things that are sort of hard, sort of hard to explain. Realities like the kingdom of heaven, some sort of final judgment. Uh, a separation that's going to take place and weeping and gnashing of teeth, really hard things to understand. And part of the point of what he was teaching was that it's not our job as human beings to decide who's in and who's out of the kingdom of heaven. It's not our job as human beings to figure out and decide for ourselves who's included and who's not included in the kingdom of heaven. All of that is God's job and only God's job. We just don't have the capacity to make decisions and choices like that. All of it's God's job. So then he began teaching about the kingdom of heaven and he's using ordinary images, images that would have sort of caught their imagination, he hoped. Things like weeds and wheat and mustard seeds and yeast. Things like treasures and pearls and fish and fishing net. But But the things that he was saying about these things, he kind of left it vague, which is an interesting teaching tactic, right? And I think part of what he was doing was leaving it vague enough so that it would spike people's curiosity so that they'd want to investigate further and use their imaginations and sort of enter into these realities that are unseen. He obviously had some success. He had like thousands of people following him around. I mean, he was kind of a new celebrity prophet at this point. And the paparazzi wasn't going to let him off the hook. They were chasing him around. So it had been a tough day, but it it had been relatively decent. Decent until he got to his hometown of Nazareth, which happens just at the end of chapter 13. He gets to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's not a celebrity there. Right? These people knew him. Like These people watched him grow up from when he was a little boy. They knew his daddy, Joseph, was just an ordinary carpenter guy. They knew his mom, Mary, too, and his brothers and sisters. So, you know, there's nothing extraordinary about this family. They were just regular people. So who did Jesus think he was talking about all this divine stuff as if he, as if he knew more about it than anybody else? So it made them sort of bitter. It made them resentful. He's in his hometown. Sometimes it's the people who think they know Jesus the most sometimes it's those people who fail to understand who he is and what he's up to which is an interesting thing and so since these people didn't seem to have eyes that hear and or eyes that hear <laughs> eyes that see and ears that Here, he decided not to make a big deal out of it because he's a mature human being. He wasn't going to push it. And so Matthew tells us that he decided at this point he wasn't going to do any miracles, not there in his hometown, for the people who knew him best. He wasn't going to show up and show off like that because it wasn't going to help these people believe and understand who he is and what he was about anyway. So no miracles. He was just going to move on. And then he gets word that... Cousin John, you know John the Baptist, the guy who baptized Jesus in the waters of the River Jordan, he'd just been murdered by Herod, beheaded, pretty gruesome. So at this point in the story, where we meet him now, he's grieving. He's super stressed out. He's bummed out. He's like got nothing left. So we can understand why he decides to get in a boat. He's going to go find himself a solitary place to be alone and figure out what's next. Trying to sort of figure out how he's going to put the pieces of his life at this point back together again, but at this point also in the story the crowds are relentless. They're totally relentless. They hear about where he's going and they follow on foot. These people, they just they wanted to they wanted to hear him teach. They were hopeful. They wanted to be healed. And so they weren't going to leave Jesus alone when he really needed to be left alone. So he goes to find a spot. They hear where he's going, and they follow on foot. And when Jesus lands his little boat, expecting to have some alone time so that he can put things back together again and figure out what's next, he sees the crowd. And instead of bolting, instead of shoving off to find another place for him to go so that he could do what he needs to do for himself, Matthew tells us that he, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Remember, he's got very, very little left. And yet, he gives of himself anyway, and he heals their sick. But now we've got a logistical problem. But really, it was late. Uh, evening was approaching, you can imagine the sun is just sort of hanging up over the horizon, which means it's getting really close to dinner time, and there's a crowd there, and they're hungry. They need something to eat, and it seems like Jesus just gave the last little bit that he had to heal their sick, but here's 5,000 men, Matthew tells us, which doesn't include the women, right? Now, if you... Think about it. If we're going to estimate, you add the women and children in, you maybe got one woman and one child per every man. We're looking at 10,000 to 15,000 people. Well, that's a lot of people. Now, whenever I think about this story, whenever I teach about this story, whenever I read about this story, I like to get a feel for the size of the crowd because I think it's important for us to just get a feel for the size of the crowd. So we're gonna do that even though we don't know what it's like to be in a crowd anymore because it's been so long. But you've been to Jack Trice Stadium, perhaps? Have you been there when it's packed? 61,500 people if you count the hillside. Like if you don't count the hillsides, it's a little less than that, but that's a lot of people. That's like five times the crowd of what we're seeing here in this story. Perhaps you've been to Wells Fargo Arena. That place holds 16,110 people. That's closer. It's really close. Now think about Hilton Coliseum. Most of us have been in there. Most of us know what that place is like when it's jam-packed. 14,356 people, they can fit in that place. That's, that's pretty much on the money right there. Now think about that. Think about that place packed full of people. And you got to feed them all and all you have is five loaves of bread and two fishes. That's about the number of empty stomachs rumbling and grumbling out there in this remote place with apparently nothing to eat. And so what did the disciples do? Well, let's just be honest about this for a moment. They did what most of us would do, what all of us would do, right? Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples were like, there's a lot of people here. This is a remote place and it's already getting late. There's no fast food places around. Send them off into the villages so that they can go buy themselves something to eat. Now that seems reasonable. There's a lot of people, a deserted place. Where were they going to get food? The problem was, I don't know how hard they really thought about it. I mean, they did a really good job of considering their resources, five loaves of bread and two fish, but then they decided immediately that it wasn't going to be enough. Nope. Not going to be enough. That's just like us human beings, isn't it? I mean, we're confronted with a problem that seems insurmountable, seems too large for us to tackle on our own, too big to handle. And We say with no trace of creativity or no imagination whatsoever, we say, "Eh, let somebody else take care of it. Like, it's their problem anyway. Let, Let them figure it out for themselves. Like, we didn't create this issue for them. They came here all on their own. This is their problem. Let them go into the villages and figure out how to feed themselves. And these were poor people. Poor, simple people following Jesus around. If you read John's version of the story, we come to find out that the loaves of bread were barley bread. These these were the cheapest loaves you could buy. This was bread for the poor. Even if they could make it into town, maybe half of them had enough to buy enough bread for them to fill their stomachs. Let somebody else take care of it. It's their own problem. Let them figure it out. You've heard the words of the English philosopher Edmund Burke. I think you've heard these. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. But why do we think this way? Seriously, why do we think this way? Why do we shirk, shake off the responsibility to to take care of other people? I think we know why. We we take a look at the resources that we have at our disposal, and we immediately decide that our resources are too small. We don't have enough. We never have enough. Because we have this worldview of scarcity that's, that's deeply ingrained in us. We never have enough to make our own lives fulfilled, so... How can we make sure that we make sure that other people have lives that are fulfilled? We, we, How are we supposed to make sure everybody else has what they need when we always feel like we don't have enough? Why is that? It's because we have this worldview of scarcity, right? And it enters into our lives really subtly. Like, it's so underneath the surface that we just don't think about it. Or sometimes we're challenged to think about it, and we do for a little while, and then we don't think about it for very long anymore. It's like the water, if we're fish, in which we swim. It's just the way things are, and it enters into our lives sort of, sort of underneath the surface. Every time we turn on the screen, any screen, Every time we listen to the radio for driving around, every time we scroll through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, we're being taught and shaped by the worldview of scarcity. Every time we see an advertisement, what is the message? Every single time, you don't have enough, you need more. You need whatever it is you're looking at right now. You need whatever it is you're hearing about right now, and you need it now. Advertisements do what they're supposed to do. They create like this empty space inside of us. And then we then need to fill it with something. We always think we need and want more than what we have. So we go out, we go to Target and Walmart and Best Buy or wherever it is, we shop on amazon.com and we bring home whatever it is we think we need that will fill that hole. And we enjoy it for a while, but it's never a long while. It's always a lot less time than we think. And then after a while, we turn on the screen again and those advertisements are there again. And there's that space created. Inside of us again that we need to fill and here's the crazy thing like we don't even need the money to buy whatever it is that we want to buy to fill that hole that's been created there for us like we don't even need the money to buy it Do you ever wonder why there are so many credit card companies this is not going to turn into a Dave Ramsey lesson I promise But do you ever wonder why there are so many credit card companies? Do you ever wonder why the most advertisements we see and hear on whatever screen we're looking at, they're almost all credit card companies, right? And the message is all the same. You want to consume? Cool. You don't have the money to consume it? That's fine. Here, get this card and you'll be fine. What's in your wallet? Not cash? That's okay. You don't need it. Here's this card. You can consume and purchase and fill that empty space. You did not even need it. See, this is how the worldview of scarcity, of never having enough, sort of gets formed in our lives, and we never even think about it. We don't pay attention to it. It's just there. So the disciples they say, it's getting late, Jesus, just Send them away. Let them go take care of it themselves. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they're like, all we got is five loaves of bread and two fishes. A worldview of scarcity right there. It has this sort of paralyzing effect on them. And us. They took a look at their resources and they decided immediately that it was not enough. And because it wasn't enough, they couldn't, wouldn't do anything about it. They knew what they had, but forgot who was with them. I think they forgot. How could they forget? I mean, dude's right there. Five minutes earlier, they just watched him heal all of their sick people. That just happened just five minutes ago. They took a look at what they had but forgot who they had with them. They just saw with their own eyes how he healed all their sick people. Maybe he made a blind man see, a deaf woman hear, a little child walk again. Maybe he helped cure a leper or helped, helped straighten out an old woman's crooked back. They knew what they had but forgot who was with them. Jesus says, great, five loaves of bread and two fish, that'll do it. Bring them to me. He had the people sit down. He took the food, gave thanks for it, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples. His disciples gave it to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Let's not forget who we have. Let's not forget who we have with us. The presence of the divine in Jesus is right here. And Jesus offers us a different worldview. It's a worldview not of scarcity. It's a worldview shaped by the theology of abundance. We have more than enough because we've got Jesus. Jesus calls on us to just trust him. Calls on us to to give him what little we have and to trust that he's gonna make it enough. But this call to trust doesn't cancel out our own responsibility, right? We're still in play here. This call to trust doesn't doesn't throw out our sense of creativity or imagination. Just as the disciples had to take on the challenge that Jesus threw at them to give the people something to eat, I think so too. We're supposed to take on the challenge of and find solution to the problems of hunger and brokenness that we see all around us and trust that God is going to take care of the outcome. This is the way that God has always worked, always worked through people to get what he wants done in the world done. And if we miss out on that and don't participate in that, we're missing 75 to 80% of what Jesus came to teach us and show us and reveal to us. He called the gospel. We're just missing it if we don't participate in that. Durham, North Carolina, 1957, seven African-American students, now known as the Royal Seven, had five loaves of courage and two fish of determination to be treated equally. So they staged a nonviolent protest known as a sit-in. You hear of these? Started a revolution. And over the next few years, similar sit-ins were organized around the country aimed at integrating segregated spaces. Huge part of the civil rights movement. Something that happened back in 1957 and the ways in which they brought about change. We're still dealing with them today. We're not done yet. Mother Teresa, you heard of her? She wasn't even five feet tall. She was just a little woman, and you know her name. She was tiny. She was given permission to start her own order, aiming at this caring for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society, and are shunned by everyone. Today, they're known as the missionaries of charity, which consists of over 4,000 nuns who care for the underprivileged, disadvantaged, disabled persons all over the world. And you can't tell me she started out with more than five loaves of bread and two fish. She probably had less. But you know her name. Because she gave what little she had to Jesus, and he did something with it. Friends, here's the deal. I think we know this in the deepest parts of ourselves, even though sometimes we don't feel like it. I think we know this in the deepest parts of ourselves, that God has promised out of whatever little we have to give, he'll make enough of it. More than enough. Because the rate of return on an investment in the kingdom of heaven, which is like a little mustard seed when you plant it in the ground, then it sprouts and becomes the largest of garden plants. And it gives shade and shelter to the birds of the air. It's grace. The rate of return on an investment in the kingdom of heaven is much, much greater than anything, any investment on Wall Street. I don't care how you organize buying up stock. If you use your Reddit buddies or some other people, the rate of of return on investment in the kingdom of heaven far outweighs any of those gains. It's not even close. Our houses aren't going to get any bigger. Our houses won't be filled with more stuff that will fulfill our lives. None of that will happen. But our hearts will expand. And people will be fed and the world will be changed. If we just take what little we have, and give it to Jesus, trust him with the out. Let's pray.